Well, good morning, church family. Morning. How's everybody doing? I was at lunch with uh, Pastor Sam earlier this week. I think it was Tuesday, and uh, we're sitting in the restaurant having lunch. And he leans over and he says, "Drew, I got this idea. How about I do your job this week, and you do my job?" And I thought about it. And I was like, "Perfect. What could go wrong?" And then we stood up and gave each other. A, Emphatic high five, just like in the Mentos commercial. <laughs> Now I lost everyone who's younger than 30, but for everyone else in the room, we're whispering the fresh maker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Drew. I'm the worship pastor here. But today I get to dive into the Word with you. We get to take a look at Matthew together. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you to do that.、Uh, we have been in the book of Matthew. For a few months now, and over the last few weeks, we have been looking specifically at the Sermon on the Mount. Now we are nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is chapters five, six, and seven in the book of Matthew, and we are in the middle and the end of chapter seven today. We're going to be looking at one of the most well-known principles ever taught to mankind today: the Golden Rule. And following that, we're going to be looking at a few of Jesus's warnings that he. Gives to those who choose not to to heed to his instruction, to follow his instruction, his words. Now, I will say from the onset that、uh, this is a a difficult, challenging、uh, piece piece of scripture that we're looking at today. And I say that because if you are like me,、um, when challenging sections of scripture come up, you may have the tendency to、um, close off. To harden your heart, to kind of wait, sit back and wait for the wrap up when we talk about God's love and grace.、Um, don't do that. Don't do that today. It's difficult. Let it be difficult. Remember that the Father loves you. He's full of grace, and that He is inviting us in to draw closer to Him. And sometimes that takes a little bit of push and conviction, and we have to kind of see the things that need to be changed in our lives. So allow the Spirit to convict you. Stay soft, stay humble. Okay, let's read our scripture for today. The golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. And、the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware, whoop, that's right. Okay, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then the last section of scripture today: Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name?" 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, as you can see, and as I said, this is a challenging section of Scripture to look at. We're going to look at it uh, linear. We'll start from the beginning uh, and go straight through to the end. We're going to spend not equal time everywhere, only because we don't have time to really pull everything apart. We'll spend most of our time in the beginning and the end. Um, but like I said, stay soft. Keep your heart soft. At the beginning again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, this is something that is incredibly well known to us. We've heard it many times. It's transcended cultures and religions, and it's shown up in a bunch of different places. And I'm almost certain that the vast majority of you are familiar with it. And so sometimes what happens is um, when we get really familiar with something, it loses its punch. So we're going to we're going to dive in and look at kind of the parts of this principle. But we have to start at the beginning. And we're going to notice something, that, the, that this verse starts with the word, so. Now, in other translations, in the King James and I think the NASB, it, the word is therefore. And we have seen many times in this church that when we see the word therefore, we have to pause and do what? We have to go back. We have to go back and see um, where this is landing from. On the heels of what does it come, right? Now, there are two opinions on how to connect this to the passage before. The first is directly to the section that comes right before, which is the father coming to his children and saying, I love you like a father, so just simply ask, seek, and knock. My hands are open. I'm willing to give. Remember that it's a relationship, and I love you, and I want to take care of you. That's opinion number one, connected to that. Opinion number two is, well, no, actually this principle serves as a conclusion and as an apex, a point in this sermon that, co that connects all of the Sermon on the Mount. And so in order to really understand where this lands, you have to look at the entire Sermon on the Mount. And I agree with that opinion. I think this does serve as a conclusion and an apex. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a super speed run through what we have seen so far in the Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully not too fast so that I don't do it injustice, but we need to see where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount so that we know where we're landing with the golden rule. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is basically taking what we think about a blessed life and he's flipping it upside down and saying, no, you don't understand. It's the meek, it's the weak, it's the poor, it's the persecuted who have a blessed life. It's those who inherit the kingdom of heaven. And the way that I think about this, it helps me, is I think about, about it like a snow globe. You guys remember how a snow globe works? Snow globe, you, you flip it upside down, or you shake it, or you shake it and flip it upside down, and then you flip it right, right side up, and it's only then that you see the scene as the creator of the snow globe intended. It's only then that you see the snow falling over the beautiful scenery. And so Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's taking what we think about blessed, a blessed life, and he's shaking it up. He's flipping it upside down and says, here, now let me show you what this actually looks like in my kingdom. He goes on to say, look, if you're my disciple, if you belong to this family, you are to be the salt and light of the world. You are to reflect the love of the Father to the world. You are to be like the moon to the sun. You reflect his light, his love to everyone else. He reminds his disciples that he does not come to abolish the law, but that he comes to fulfill it. 
He says the law is good. And in fact, what he does in the time on the Sermon on the Mount is he magnifies many parts of the law. And he, he requests of his disciples to go one step further than what they know to be the law. He says the law is good. I don't come to abolish it. I come to fulfill it. And I am the only one that fulfills it. He points out that anger, lust, divorce, oaths, and retaliation are not the way that we love people in this kingdom. They are not his perfect loving expression. And so we get rid of those if we are Sermon on the Mount people. He reminds us that kingdom love goes the extra mile. It goes the extra step. We don't just love those who treat us well. We don't love those who love us. We love those who don't treat us well. We love those who hate us. We love those who are our enemies. Kingdom love is extra. It goes the extra step. When we see someone who is in need, we give in abundance. Go further, Jesus says, go further. He then teaches us how to pray. He says, don't be like those who go out in front of all the people and long prayers and they're loud and they want everyone to know what they're doing. Go quietly into your closet, into your room. Pray for those who you love, pray for yourself and pray for the kingdom of God to come to earth as it is in heaven. And sometimes while we're praying for those things, we have to go in deeper and we have to fast. And many people in this room can attest to the power of prayer with fasting. You've seen that in your life as I have. He reminds us that the treasures that we have here on earth are fleeting. They're not true treasures. Your true treasure has been given to you already. It's Jesus. It's the hope that you have through Christ. That is eternal. That's the, the treasure you are to cling to. So don't cling to those things that are fleeting. And don't be anxious about those things. Your Father is good and will provide those things that you need to you. He loves you. He will take care of you as, your, as his child. And finally, as we talked about last week, if we are to judge someone who is in the family, who knows the family rules, as Isaac said, then we are to do it in love. And if they're not in the family and they don't know the family rules, would you want to be approached with criticism if you didn't know the rules? Or would you want to be approached in love? We don't treat people the same way if they know or they don't. Judge them in love if they're in the family. And remember, your father, this is like a model. Remember, your father loves you and he has a relationship with you. And the way he interacts with you, as in this last section of how to seek him in prayer, it's a model. He's your father, you're his child. As a good father wants to give to his child, it reminds the child that the child is always welcome to come and ask. And you feel welcome. Okay. Now on the heels of that, we land once again on this. Let me read it to you again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Like I just said, sometimes we lose the punch of something if we know it well. So we're gonna pick this apart a little bit. There's three really cool things about this principle um, that make it exceptional. Number one is that it's incredibly simple yet super effective. It's incredibly simple, but it's super effective, okay? Number two is it actually works even further than a rule, like a system, like a self-contained system. 
so that you are able to process your actions through this system without having to reference other things, understand how this would affect someone else, and then make your decisions on your behavior, your ethic towards others based on how you would want to be treated. It's self-contained. Number three, it's applicable in many, many instances. You can apply it all over your life in many situations. Now, the other day, um, I was having, I told you, I was having lunch with Sam, um, and we talked about this passage, and we both realized at the same time um, that this is our go-to way of discipling and disciplining our children. Now, Sam, Pastor Sam has two little ones. Um, they're younger than mine. I have two, two kids. My, my kids are seven and nine. My son's name is Augustine. He's a seven-year-old. My daughter's name is Edith, and she's nine. And I'll paint for you a, a, a picture that's common. Edith will come to me and say, Dad, Augustine just said something super rude to me. I was like, okay, what is it? And then she'll tell me what it is, and I'll say, yeah, that is super rude. Okay, let me go talk to Augustine. So I go and approach Augustine, and I'll tell you what I don't do. What I don't do is I don't sit down with Augustine and open up the law and go look for the specific thing that addresses his infraction and say, Augustine, look, very specifically, the Bible teaches us this thing that you are not to do. Uh, do you see it? Okay. I don't do that, and most parents don't do that either. Instead, what do I do? I say, Augustine, the way that you just said that to Edith, how would you feel if she said that to you? Would you feel loved by your sister? Now, if Augustine is in a place to hear it, which you know, happens sometimes, sometimes not. But if he is in a place to hear it, he will say, yeah, no, you're right. It isn't loving. And what he's done is he's reversed places with his sister. And he now is the recipient of the action. And it checks his heart. And it checks her heart. And he sees, oh yeah, no, you're right. It is not loving. Similarly, Augustine could come to me and say, you know, Edith, handed me a toy in a, in, a, in a disrespectful way. And you know, you guys know what I'm talking about, ki parents of young kids. Okay, Edith, give it back to Augustine. Here, Augustine, and it drops and breaks on the floor. Um, same thing. She will recognize that her action is unloving simply by reversing places with her brother and seeing, oh yeah, no, that would not be a loving way for Augustine to do it. It's super simple, but incredibly effective. And that's why we default to it as parents. It's very easy to understand this kind of love, right? Okay. I mentioned that it's kind of the self-contained system. You don't need to go and get extra resources to understand how this works. You don't always need to go to Scripture and find specific examples of um, what to do in this specific case. Now, sometimes you do, and I'm not discrediting specific instruction found in Scripture, instruction you're going to get from counselors or pastors or church leaders or friends that you trust. But what's so cool about the golden rule is that it's self-contained. It's kind of like you have this internal system by which you can just filter and process your actions. Is this something that is loving to the person I'm about to interact with? Is this going the extra mile for this person? Can I do more to show my love? And then you govern your behavior on this. And it's applicable everywhere. I mean, many of us know in this room who use this all of the time, like this works in so many situations. Now, the thing that we have to challenge ourselves today is Jesus is very intentional about where he places this 
at the end of his sermon and says, look, this sums up all of the law and all of the teachings of the prophets. This is the summary of all ethical code that you have heard of. Are we living in a way that shows that this is as central as Jesus would like it to be in our lives? What do I mean by that? Are you bringing it to the forefront of your mind in the way that you treat others? Now, our default, as you know, is kind of like self-serving. And so sometimes we think about our actions like, well, I didn't anger them. And it's kind of this minimum approach. But Jesus is saying, no, what will show love? What will show extra to this person? That's how I want you to treat them. And so if we aren't applying this the way that Jesus intends us to, like super central, then we got to feel that challenge today that maybe we should be waking up in the morning and praying and asking the Father to, to help us to live in this manner, to help us to be applying this truly. Help me to make this the central thing. Help me to filter all of my behavior towards others through this idea. Because if, if we really did this, the world would look like a pretty different place, I think, right? Okay, hold on to that. We're moving forward. After this golden rule, Jesus gives uh, his disciples four warnings. We're looking at three of them today. Um, I said they're going to be challenging. Allow them to be challenging. It isn't enough to hear all of this instruction from Jesus through all the Sermon on the Mount and to think about it, and to process it, and to leave it in your brain and to not do anything with it. Jesus says, no, you need to put all of this to action. And if you fail to do that or you choose not to try, there are some warnings that he gives. Number one, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I'm going to ask you to do something with this um, piece of scripture. Now, some of us are um, naturally bent to be visualizing people, like visual people. We can see things in our brain and it helps us understand. Um, like the snow globe thing I just talked about. For some of you guys, it was like, well, that was cool. I can kind of see how, be, yeah, that works. And some of you are like, what? Snow globe? Give me a break. Like, um, first of all, if you thought that was not good, you're wrong. It's good. Um, no, I'm, I'm serious. It will be difficult for some and easier for others. I want you to do this with this passage, okay? I want you to, if it helps to close your eyes, I want you to visualize the two roads, okay? The two gates and the two paths that follow. There's a wide gate and there's a wide path that follows it. Hold it on one side of your brain. And on the other side, there's a narrow gate small, unassuming, and a narrow path. Okay, we're going to start there. Now hold those and we're going to build on those. This section of scripture is full of contrasting elements. The first is the obvious one. It's the narrow and wide. Um, we have that already in our head. Okay, let me go to the next pair. The next pair is easy and hard. Um, the translation of easy and hard into English doesn't quite do it justice. It's a little uh, lack specificity. When Jesus says easy, what he's referring to about this wide gate, wide road, got in your brain, is that it's roomy and spacious. That's what makes it easy. There's lots of space. There's lots of room. You can bring whatever you want on there. 
Okay, so now add that to your picture, that this wide gate, wide path, there's lots of space. No matter, there's people on there, they all have space. There's lots of space, there's wiggle room. You're comfortable up there, okay? By contrast, the narrow way, following the narrow gate, is hard in the way that it is constricting. It's narrow, there's no wiggle room. And in the King James Version, they use the word straight and not straight, like you've heard straight and narrow, not straight like straight, but straight like a straight jacket. It's constrained. There's not a lot of space. You don't get to bring everything with you. Okay, have you added that to your pictures? Let's move on. Jesus says that this wide gate with the wide path that follows it leads to destruction. But the narrow gate with the narrow path that follows it leads to life. Certain destruction, certain life. These are hard terms. They're black and white terms. There's no gray. There's no better life, worse life, cozy life, not so cozy life. It's death and life. And he's not, he's not toying around here. He's not sugarcoating it. So now add to your pictures this wide gate, wide road, lots of wiggle room, certainly ends in destruction. And the narrow way and the narrow gate leads to life. Last pair. Jesus says that on this wide path that follows the wide gate are many, many people. Put lots of people in there in your picture. There are many people on this, on this road. The majority of people are on this road, okay? On the narrow path, though, are few, the minority. And in fact, he distinguishes a couple things. There are many people who enter the wide road, but there are a few people who what? Find the narrow path. And so of those few people that find, can even find the path, only fewer of them enter it, far fewer and the majority. We have to pause here because we have been given a, de a definition of the word majority that we kind of dis instinctually run with um, in, moder in modern culture, modern America especially. Uh, let me give you some examples. Number one is our political system. So our political system runs on the majority. We have a democratic system, right? So where the majority lands has value and significance in determining the things that are the best choices, the way to go the best rules, the best laws, the, the best candidates, the best leaders, right? Now, I have no problem with our political system. It's great, I love it. I'm not gonna talk about politics. Greg already mentioned, now that's not a good idea. I have a slim chance of coming back here, up here and talking to you as it is. I'm not gonna get into politics on Sunday morning. Uh, so we're not gonna go there, but politics gives us an example of how the majority uh, has value. It has significance. It means very often the right thing. But we have some other things that happen in our culture that kind of run against that and don't serve us well. You guys know about the like MTV Music Awards? Or is it Emmys or Grammys, the music? One, Grammys, yeah, okay. Uh, those are also, and the Oscars, those are all run by majority vote, as far as I understand. There's like a group, even if it's a smaller group, and the majority picks kind of what's the best album, what's the best, uh, movie of the year, who's the best, whatever. Um, now, most of you will agree that not always the best album of the year is the best. Sometimes it's total trash. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a music <laughs> snob. 
Like, seriously. I'm like, how did you land on all of the music that came out this year? Like, that's the best. Um, right? And the same thing with, with films. Just like, how did this win best picture? Um, but it's a majority vote, and that is, helps us to determine what is right. The problem is, majority does not work with moral and ethic. We know this. We know this well. Majority does not work with moral and, and ethic. Maybe sometimes, but definitely not always. And what Jesus is saying is not even sometimes and always. He's saying the majority is a sure sign that you're on the road to destruction. He's very clear here. In fact, you can use the majority to determine what is wrong, what is on the path to destruction. Hard words. So how do we respond to that? <clears throat> well, we have to think about if we are the type of person that likes to look around and see what everyone else is doing, even in the church, and say, oh, yeah, no, that's the way to do it. That's what everybody else is doing. It's working for them. It's comfortable for them. It produces this kind of life, which I like. Is this our model? Are we looking to the majority for guidance when Jesus is very clear that the, the gate and the road with the majority leads to destruction? Now, let's take another look back at the narrow gate and the narrow path. Hopefully, you've held those images in your mind. Wide road leads to destruction, inevitably. The narrow gate, which has, leads to life, has very few people on it, okay? So picture it. It's unassuming. It's hard to find, this gate. Even if you do find it, that doesn't necessarily mean you enter. You enter it, it's constrained, it's straight, it's difficult. I mean, except for that whole part where it leads to life at the end, which is good, uh, it doesn't seem all of that appealing. Like, it doesn't seem like this nice, cozy, wide road with lots of people who all bring their stuff on there and have a great time. So what is it that should draw us to the, to the narrow road? What is our comfort in choosing the narrow gate and the narrow path? Well, it's Jesus. This is Jesus's path. This is Jesus's gate. Jesus took this road. He's not on the wide road. He's not on the easy path. He's not on the way to destruction. He's on the way to life. In fact, Jesus is life. He says he is the gate. In John 10, Jesus reminds us that he is the door by which we enter into the kingdom. When we come to the narrow gate, if Jesus is the gate, then that means it is at the gate that we lay down our will. We give up and we submit to God our own will, our own desires. There's going to be no wiggle room. But Jesus doesn't leave us at the gate. He follows us on the narrow path and he stays with us and he he, we grasp hands and we walk through this life together. The comfort is that Jesus is with you always, he says. The narrow gate, though it's going to be difficult, the narrow path, though it's going to be constricted, this is the gate and the path on which we find Christ. Now, there isn't room for our own will and our own opinion. There isn't all that space. There's no democracy in God's kingdom. It is the Father's way, the Father's will. But as you choose to walk it, you are hand in hand with Jesus. And many of you in this room know that when things get really difficult, 
Jesus picks you up and carries you through those hard parts. He is with you always, and he is faithful to take you from the gate to life eternal. That is Jesus' promise here. Can you picture it now? All of a sudden, that becomes so much more beautiful. And just to add the sheen to that picture are some words from Martin Luther. He says, Christ himself and the whole heavenly host are at my side and have traveled this very same way, preceding me to heaven in a beautiful and long procession until the last day all Christendom will be traveling on the same road. Generation after generation, hundreds of years of faithful brothers and sisters have chosen and have stuck with the narrow gate and the narrow road. And when you choose that, you join them in this beautiful picture, walking hand in hand with Jesus to life with the Father eternal. So as we've stopped in other places, how are you doing with that? How does the wide road and narrow road look to you? How does that wide gate appeal to you? Are you the type of person that loves comfort, wants the room and the space? Have you allowed your will to submit to Jesus? Or does that road keep calling you? Are you wrestling with that? We have to do some serious self-reflection and say, yeah, no, I have passed through the gate and I have committed to a life more difficult, yet a life that is accompanied by the King himself. Okay, let's move forward. This one we won't spend too much time on. I just have a couple things I want to say about this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Okay, so this is a clear warning from Jesus that we are to look out for bad teaching, false prophets, bad teachers who want to lead us in the wrong direction. And they are, um, in First in Timothy, it speaks more about these false teachers and false prophets and said they are motivated by personal gain by disguising themselves in godliness. Okay? This is intentional deception. Now, there are two groups. I said I wanted to address two things. So there's two groups in this room, certainly, and I want to address you separately. The first group um, hears these words. You've heard them before. You understand that Jesus said them, so they're true. But you don't necessarily live in a way that shows that you have a true um, concern for this in the church or for yourself. I want to push in a little bit and say, Jesus's words are true for today. This isn't just when he said them, but that among us always are those who are dressed in sheep's clothing who would like for nothing more than to gain personally on the expense of the, the disciple of Christ. Their sermons are all over YouTube. Their books fill the Christian aisle in Barnes and Noble. They want to make the message softer or 
They want to make things seem easier or less exclusive. Always lead to heaven is an example, right? What I want to push you if you're in that, how I want to push you if you're in that group is take this claim seriously. Be careful and watch out for the teaching and, and always when you are looking for teaching to instruct you, to guide you, you need to hold it up to the word and see how it aligns with the scripture that God has given you, okay? If you aren't sure, come find guidance and counsel. And lastly, be in prayer for the church. Be in prayer for leaders. Be in prayer that we would be able to discern good, good teaching from bad teaching, true prophets from the fake. Bad trees who will in any moment spread their disease to the whole orchard from the, from the good who have kept their hearts near to the Father. Be in prayer for that. Now there's another group um, who know exactly what I'm talking about because you have experienced this personally. You've been burned by a bad teacher or a bad pastor or a bad leader or a bad church that has deceived you and you carry that hurt and that pain around with you. Certainly in this room, there are. And to you, I want to say, I'm, I'm super sorry that that happened. Like, I know it's, it's real and it causes real pain and you carry that with you. And it even causes you an inability to trust. You're on the fence. For you, I would like to say, you don't need to deny that hurt and that pain but move your energy and your focus to join this other group in prayer for your church. Be in prayer for leaders and discernment that we would be able to see and call out bad teaching, bad prophets for what they are because they hurt the church all the time. And you know this. We have seen time after time, bad teacher, bad, bad prophet, bad leader take a church down. Okay, he continues with this. And this is the most difficult. I think it causes us the most like anxiety and, and wiggle in our chairs. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, what I think Jesus is doing here is he's taking uh, our view, our perspective from wide to small. So let me tell you what I mean. On the, on the first warning, where there's a wide gate and a narrow gate, we have this vantage point, this perspective where we see the whole landscape and we zoom in on one of those two roads as we make a choice. And we zoom in to the narrow path should we choose to heed Christ's warning. Now, once we're there, on the second, where there are bad trees and good trees, we have to look around and identify the smaller circle, identify who is a good teacher, who is false. And on this third example, we are now talking about people who very much look like the real deal. They are not trying to deceive. They are not intentionally out for their own gain. But nevertheless, Jesus says, on that day, I will say, I never knew you. Get away from me. And the reason why this one is the cha most challenging and it 
rubs us the wrong way the most is because we start getting concerned for ourselves and for those around us. We're like, I don't know, that person looks pretty legit. And there are reasons why this person looks like the real deal that I want to talk about. In fact, there are three things that the true disciple and this false disciple share in common and what makes this difficult to understand. We're going to talk about those, but there are a couple things that differentiate them. Now, if you come into this with anxiety, my goal here is not to add more anxiety or to cause you stress. I want to point out some things that are in the text that should help you feel comfort and peace with your walk in Christ if you are on the narrow path. If not, allow it to challenge you today. Allow it to to push you into the arms of the Father. Okay, number one is this group of people that Jesus is talking about refers to Jesus as what? Lord. They have correctly identified him as a person of authority, as a good teacher, as someone to honor and to respect at minimum, and at maximum as son of God, as deity. I mean, the scene that he's describing here is the last day when you come before Christ and he has revealed himself for who he is as the son of God, and yet this person still calls him Lord. So they understand who he is. They understand his nature and his authority as a teacher. And you're like, well, So does the legit Christian. Yes, that's true. Number two, not only they say Lord, they say Lord, Lord. Now, what does that mean in scripture? When we see places in scripture where the name is like doubled like that, very often it means this. Um, It's like when Jesus talks to Martha. Do you guys remember that scene? And she's all stressed out about everything going on in the house. And he's like, Martha, Martha, don't worry about all of those things. I'm here with you. Spend time with me. Another example would be, um, I think it's 2 Samuel, where David learns about his, the death of his son, Absalom. And you read in that text, he cries out and he says, my son, my son, Absalom, Absalom. To double the name very often means that you have made an emotional investment, an emotional connection to whom you're addressing. So this false disciple, this group that Jesus is talking about, calls him rightly Lord. And not only that, is emotionally invested, emotionally involved. These may be people who are super expressive at church, jump up and down, who are really into it or get excited. And yet, Jesus is calling them out for what they are. The third, which is the most obvious, is that they do all these incredible things in his name. He says, We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did mighty works in your name. And you're like, well, what's the deal? How were they able to do all of that in the name of Jesus? Because that's what a true disciple would do. They would do the work of of Christ. It would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of the Father. Okay, so that overlap is, it's genuine to be concerned about them. Like, what, how is this working here? Now, what we need to look at is the two distinguishing factors. And those are found also in the text. And I want to point them out to you this morning. Okay, number one, Jesus starts with a contrast of this person who he's talking about with who? The person, the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then he confirms that contrast by saying, you are a worker of lawlessness. So this false disciple, this group, does not do the will of the Father 
they are in fact doing something contrary to the law that the Father has given. So they do all these other things and yet they don't do the law of the Father, they don't do the will of the Father. Now how do you get there? In order to do the will of the Father, you have to first die to your own will. You have to first give up your own agenda. You have to give up those things that you long for that are contrary to that of the Father. When you pass through the narrow gate, that's precisely what you do. You lay down your will at the foot of Jesus and you say, not my will, your will be done. This group of false disciples that Jesus is talking about have not done that. They do all the work in the church. They show up and make the pies and they, they do the Sunday school classes and they do all of the actions, but they have never given of their own will and laid it down and said, Father, your will, not mine. That's number one. Number two is grace. They don't understand grace. How do I know that? How can we determine that from the text? How do they approach Jesus on the last day? What do they say? They come to him and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things I've done. Look at all of the, the works that I have accomplished. Look at all the time I spent doing these things for you. Look at all of my works. And what they're missing here, which is so important, is that the Father's grace has nothing to do with what you think you can do for him. The Father's grace and the Father's love is best expressed in the sacrifice of the Son. It is Jesus's work and the person of Jesus that we claim, and we claim nothing else. Instead of coming to Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, look at all that I've done, the true disciple says, Lord, look at all that you have done. Lord, I come humbly. I have nothing to offer to you. I cling to the hope that I have in you, Jesus. And that's all that I have. To understand grace is to understand that you have nothing to offer. And so they miss it. They have not submitted their will and they don't understand the way grace works. And so today, as we look at that, I want you to once again reflect. How are you doing with that? Are there hidden parts of your life that you have not submitted over to Jesus? Do you truly understand that the work that you do for the church, for Christ, is merely a response to the grace that the Father has shown you by calling, him in, calling you into his family, into the kingdom. It does not buy you into anything. It is the work and person of Christ that we stand on, and that's it. That's all we have to claim this morning. Now, there are three ways to respond to this today, three things that I want to do. Number one is, um, we really need to, to be, to be Sermon on the Mount people, we really, we really need to know the Sermon on the Mount. Like, we need to know it inside and out. 
We need to have spent time and we need to know it, know it. Now, I uh, am a, like a super fan of music. I love music. I don't just love to play music, but I love to collect music. Um, I still buy cassettes. Many of you don't know that they still make cassettes. They do. They still make cassettes. I still buy new cassettes. Uh, I, I buy, why? Because they sound cool, I don't know. Because they sound different. Um, it's true. I still buy CDs, I still buy records. Um, I love to collect and to listen to music and I have my favorite albums, like we all do, and I've listened to those albums time and time and time and time again. Like hours and hours. I could sing to you the guitar parts, I know all the drum fills, I know the words, um, and I have poured myself into these albums because I like them. They, they bring me a lot of enjoyment. And this week I felt incredibly convicted by how much more time I have spent listening to my favorite albums than truly examining and meditating over what I call the central governing uh, part of scripture in my life, the Sermon on the Mount. I just confess that to you this morning. And many of you may share that with me. Why do we spend so much time with these TV shows and music and we don't? It's only when we talk about this on Sunday morning or when it pops up in our devotion. We need to know the Sermon on the Mount to be Sermon on the Mount people. We have to digest it fully. We need to understand it. We need to have spent time meditating with it, praying with it, and saying, God, help me to know this so that it comes out of me second nature. We got to reflect as we did all, all morning with all of these spots. We have to be reflecting and saying, reveal to me, Father, where I'm not doing well. Which of these hits you the hardest? Why? What is it that causes that friction? And bring it to God and lay it down and say, I need help. I've reflected on these things and I need help. They're not easy. The Father loves you. He's not warning you to push you away. <laughs> He's not giving you these things to cause strife and tension. He wants you to draw in. And sometimes we just need the little push. Submit those things to him today. Be willing to take a look at your life and those areas and say, I need help with those things. I submit them to you, Father. Remember, when you submit your life to Christ at the narrow gate, that he is faithful to walk you through this difficult life hand in hand into the glory of the Father and eternal life. That's what he wants for you today, precisely. And that's why we talk about all of these things for that one reason. Let's stand for communion. Well, this morning we come humbly to the communion table, recognizing and remembering that we have nothing to bring. We have nothing of our own to offer. 
It is only by the work of Jesus that we are invited into this family. The song Rock of Ages, which I like to sing, we sing here together often, has a verse that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Wretched to the fount I fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. This is life and death stuff. It is by the son's death that we have life today. And today we remember that, and we are incredibly thankful that it is not by our own work. We do not present our own things. We rest fully in the completed work of Jesus this morning. That is our hope. This bread represents our Savior, our King's body broken for us. Take this in remembrance of his gift. The juice is the representation of new life, a new hope, a new covenant, a way back. And we take this in remembrance that it is a sacrifice that bought us this way back in. This is the, the blood of Christ that bought us back in. Lord, we, we desire today as your disciples to be people of the Sermon on the Mount. We wanna be kingdom-minded people, Sermon on the Mount people, but we need desperately your help. As we've just looked at all of these things, they are challenging, they are difficult, but you are faithful to help us at each point. You are faithful to provide everything that we need, Lord, and you are faithful to walk us through this life until we see you face to face. That is your grace and that is our hope. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.